0: Hello and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andre Matyšak, and I work as the Deputy Head of Foreign Desk in Slovak Devi Pravda. The aim of the UK COP26 presidency was to keep alive the hope of limiting the rise of global temperature to 1.5 degrees Celsius and the Glasgow Climate Pact does just that. Combined with increased ambition and actions from countries, one5 remains in sight, but it will only be achieved if every country delivers on what they have pledged. This is what the Glasgow Climate Pact from 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference that took place in November said. Before COP26, I had a chance to talk to political economist Alexander Gerd Murray, who is a postdoctoral fellow with the Climate Solutions Lab and the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University. And he is again my guest. How does he assess COP26? Who were the heroes and dividends villains of the COP26 according to him? And is humanity still on a self-destructive path? Listen to our conversation. When we talked before the COP26, you mentioned three important topics related to the conference. Keeping 1.5 alive, helping poorer countries dealing with climate change and carbon trading. Let's try to go through those topics. First, 1.5. Alok Sharma, the UK cabinet minister who presided over COP26, said that history has been made in Glasgow. But he also acknowledged that the pulse of 1.5 is weak. Is it weak? Or basically flat? It's not flat.
1: We are closer to 1.5 than we were before, but we're still definitely not there. We're definitely not on track. There are a bunch of ways that we can measure it. You, know, you can look at the actual policies that countries have implemented that are on their books, and that's looking like we would get between like 2.7 and 3.1. According to Climate Action Tracker, if we look at the official plans that they put forward, the nationally determined contributions or NDCs, that's we're headed to two point four. Now that's a little bit of an improvement from before the COP, where we were probably headed to about two point six. So when I say you know we're a little closer, the, the difference is between two point six degrees and two point four. Um, if you also give countries credit. For the net zero targets, you know, the dates that they, their leaders have said, oh, well, we'll, you know, we won't, we'll have net zero emissions by 2050. So if you take those and you assume that every country is going to do, we're going to fulfill those pledges, remember those pledges don't come with plans, they're just things that they're saying, then we might be on track for two degrees. But even in that very optimistic scenario, that still doesn't get us to 1.5. So so 1.5 is still not what we're headed towards.
0: Could you elaborate a bit on what was the biggest problem here? Because of course, 1.5 is crucial. So are leaders still lacking ambitions to do something bold?
1: The COP26 process, or the whole COP process, involves you know, a bunch of different issue areas. You know, there's methane, there's deforestation, there's coal, there's fossil fuel financing, there's zero emissions vehicles, there's agriculture. Um, you know, we can't point to any one of those issue areas and say, oh, well, this is the one, you know, we're far enough away from our goals that, you know, there's one issue area that's holding us up. It's it's a lack of progress on all of them. On, on lots of areas, we saw some progress or we saw some countries at least saying, pledging to do more. Most of our issue areas, we've got some forward movement, but I'd say in in all of them, or almost all of them, they're not pledging to do enough, right? We need pretty ambitious, pretty bold, pretty fast action. And I think across the board, the actions people are promising to do are still too slow. So that's why we're off track because there's no area where we're really treating this with the seriousness it deserves.
0: What about carbon trading? Was this scheme somewhat improved at the COP26?
1: Yes. Now, So I think carbon trading, the agreement that we got on carbon trading is imperfect. A lot of compromises were made. It still has flaws, it still has holes. But this is probably one of the most significant things to come out of COP26. Because at Paris, six years ago, you know, we basically we started talking about getting carbon trading going but we couldn't get a global framework in place. And here finally, uh, COP26, that global framework has kind of been cobbled together. There are already a bunch of carbon trading schemes around the world, right? The European Union has its emissions trading system. There are a bunch of private schemes where companies like airlines will say, oh, we offset our emissions by buying projects elsewhere. The the big problem is finding a way to integrate all these schemes. Because you have a bunch of little schemes in, in different countries it doesn't really work as well uh, as a system where you can trade them across borders around the world. There are a lot of obstacles to doing that well and making sure you do it without allowing people to cheat the system or game the system. And COP26 basically got some meaningful agreements on how to resolve those issues. They're not perfect agreements, but, but we, we did actually make real progress on having a workable global framework for carbon trading.
0: If you can describe it in a more concrete way, how it was improved? Big improvement is just having that framework and the
1: sticking points, the problems that were stopping us from having that framework before. I think probably the biggest one was how to avoid double counting. In a trading scheme, what's usually happening is one country is doing some kind of project that's going to avoid emissions and another country or company would like to buy the credit for that. You know. So let's say Brazil builds a wind farm and then a company in the UK might buy credit for that wind farm. The thing you want to avoid is a situation where both Brazil says we've reduced our emissions and that company in the UK says they've reduced emissions because then two people are getting credit for the same emissions reductions, but we're only avoiding it once. Finding a really good way to do that is hard. In Glasgow, The solution was basically to say that the country that's selling the credits can choose to authorize. You can authorize the selling of the credit to another country and say, "We're we are not going to take credit for that at home. We authorize you to sell that credit somewhere else. That probably takes care of the biggest, easiest way we could get double counting. So this, this does help with double counting. There's still probably ways that countries could cheat. There are still ways that countries could gain that system, but one of the major double counting risks is taken care of. The other sticking points were how to deal with the credits from the previous Kyoto Protocol era. So there are about 4 billion tons worth of credits left over from Kyoto. And some people wanted to not allow any of those into the new system. And obviously anyone who has those credits wanted to bring them over. The compromise was to allow about 300 million tons of those credits through. So, not none of them, but not all of them, which is good. And lastly, there was a desire among developing countries to kind of use some of the money from credit schemes, from of those offsets, to basically tax them or, or, or extract some money from trading to pay for projects in, in poor countries and developing countries. And there is going to be some of that, but much less than they originally wanted because of opposition from rich countries.
0: This brings me to another topic. The final document from the COP26 said there were also commitments to significantly increase financial support through the Adaptation Fund as developed countries were urged to double their support to developing countries by 2025. Is this enough? It's probably not enough.
1: It's, it's almost certainly not enough. I mean, the shadow hanging over all these discussions is you know over any of these new promises is that we've already failed to meet our existing promises the goal that was set in paris was that we would have 100 billion dollars in climate finance by 2020 now there are disagreements about how you can measure that but even in the most generous way of, of measuring that we're still not hitting 100 billion we're more like 80 billion dollars so we still haven't met that met that goal And developed countries at COP26 basically said, we're not going to meet that that goal until at least 2023. Any new pledges, any new promises needs to be taken with a grain of salt because even the existing promises haven't been met there. But there are some positives. The idea of doubling adaptation finance, this is something that developing countries really want because it's important for them to, many of them are countries that are vulnerable, the most vulnerable to climate impact. So getting funding to make them more resilient is really important. Um, So doubling adaptation finance is a worthwhile goal. The other big fight was over loss and damage. So not just preparing to make you more resilient, but getting money to help you cope with the damage you're already going to sustain or you already have sustained. And that's supposed to be, along with mitigation and adaptation, the the third pillar of the COP process. And the developing countries really fought hard to get funding for, for loss and damage locked in. And they basically didn't get what they wanted there. There's a new thing called the Santiago Network, a new kind of network to provide technical assistance to help them apply for funding. But but they didn't really get strong new commitments in terms of financing for that.
0: Seems to be that in regard to helping developing countries, the rich states are just kicking can down the road. But we'll see. I don't want to judge it right now. But there was another huge debate at COP26. How satisfied or unsatisfied could we be if countries only agree to phase down rather than phase out coal?
1: Right. So this, you know, this is a, is a crucial issue because obviously coal is really has a lot more global warming potential than oil and gas and is also used to power lots of countries' economies. It's also becoming uneconomical in many places. So it's something we should be phasing out. We should be getting rid of coal. The fact that we couldn't get an agreement to phase it out, but just to phase down, you know, is a a bit disappointing. But whatever language we use, phase out or phase down, neither of those yet come with really concrete plans in most countries. There's a separate agreement by 40 countries to set targets for their phasing out. So with rich countries in that agreement, like the UK saying they're going to do it by the 2030s and the poor countries in that agreement to do it by the 2040s. That's productive because they're they're setting some targets, but it's still a ways away. We probably should be getting out of coal faster than that. And it also doesn't include the US, it doesn't include China or India, you know, which are really big coal users. The other thing to consider, right, is that even though coal is more emissive than oil and gas, it's not the only uh, source of emissions. And we really need action to phase down and phase out gas and oil as well. And there was some movement, some countries, including the U.S., said they're going to end public financing for fossil fuel development or at least fossil fuel development without carbon capture and storage. And so that's, that is positive, but it's still short of saying, actually, we have a plan to get out of oil and gas.
0: You said that carbon trading is an area in which some improvement was achieved. And the discussion about the call was clearly not that successful. If you look at the other issues, in what other areas some progress was achieved and, and in what not much was done?
1: First, I'll say that I think the reason why carbon trading might have made some more progress in other areas is partially because it's been on the agenda for a while you know sometimes these take several years to to go through and get but also because it is something it really depends on international agreement right the the core blocking thing is countries agreeing about how their systems are going to interact so if you can get all countries together in a room and have them come up with an agreement then that really is where you can get some action on most issues the real action you know really has to come through implementation at home policies at home so no matter what they promise whether or not you say you're going to phase out coal or you're going to cut methane emissions, it has to be implemented in national laws. And when it comes to those, you know, whether it's deforestation or methane or the coal phase out or or fossil fuel financing or or zero emissions vehicles, I would say we shouldn't be satisfied with any of them. Progress isn't satisfactory on any of those issues.
0: If the progress is unsatisfactory, and maybe to use a little bit more colorful journalistic language, who were the heroes of the COP26, if any? And what about, let's say, the villains?
1: <laughs> I mean, I think in, in terms of heroes, I think we should give a lot of credit to protesters and activists and people you know who you know make the difficult journey to the head to COP and to you know really try and pressure countries year after year to make more progress. They're there representing either you know, obviously countries have official Legal representatives there, but I think you know the protesters uh, should also be seen as representing many of us who have who, who want to see more action. I'm cautious about you know like a narrative where people are, are are cast as villains. You know I think we have really it's it's less a battle between good and evil at COP than it is a, a battle we're all fighting and failing on it's something where. You know, obviously, there are fossil fuel companies that are opposing action. There are plenty of countries that aren't doing enough. Whether it's you know rich countries like the U.S. that that aren't providing enough money to developing countries, or countries like Saudi Arabia and Russia that are you know are exporting fossil fuels and 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 don't want to stop doing it. Easy to point at individual countries, but I think really there's a, the failure across the board for most of them. I don't think we can blame it only on one specific actor there's basically there's plenty of blame to go around
0: Talking about whom to blame there was a narrative related to COP26 that was in my opinion used and misused by I would say usual suspects especially by climate change deniers and climate change skeptics but in fact also by mainstream media that all the participants of COP26 just flew to Glasgow creating a lot of emissions and that it's somehow hypocritical did you notice this narrative?
1: I've definitely heard this criticism. And I think there's a version of this criticism which is worth taking into account, which is there were some aspects of this COP that were not managed well. There were f- more than 40,000 delegates accredited, but the facilities set up the conference center could only accommodate, I believe the pandemic restrictions, about 10,000. So there were real problems with everyone getting access. You know, uh, So many of the people who traveled to Glasgow ended up having to watch or participate remotely. They might as well have just stayed at home. And obviously these access issues often affect, you know, people, delegates coming from developing countries or delegates coming from civil society. I do think we need to take access seriously at COP and maybe have fewer people actually there in the room or at least have facilities that are they're large enough to, to have. them. But I do think the argument generally that, that you sometimes hear from people saying, criticizing it as hypocritical that people fly to COP. I think that's a distraction. The amount of flying that's being done for COP is pretty minuscule in comparison to the flying that's done every day for for much less important events. And I think there is value in getting people together in the same room to hash out some of these uh, issues. Whether it needs to be 44,000, I don't know, but basically I think this is a distraction. And I think it's part of a larger pattern of distraction where people sometimes say, if you fly or something, or if you drive, you can't also be a climate activist because you're hypocritical. But the fact is, everybody living in industrialized civilization is implicated in and benefits from the use of fossil fuels. We we can't end it just by having people cut back on consumption, though we, we should cut back on our consumption where we can. But ultimately, we're going to need systemic changes. And that's what COP should be aiming for. And people need to fly to COP to make that happen.
0: It's definitely a distraction. Critics of climate activism are basically claiming that you cannot be a climate activist if you are not living in a cave. But of course, you cannot do much from the cave. But you mentioned a few things about how COP26 was organized. I know it might be not easy to judge, but how do you rate the British government' diplomatic skills and probably also passion for COP26?
1: You can't blame the host if you don't get a fully ambitious outcome so i don't fully blame the uk for the fact that this cop like all the previous cops produced insufficient outcomes because the host ultimately can only do so much i don't think their leadership of the cop was entirely satisfactory that said partially because of these access issues right just in terms of basic infrastructure having enough seats right even in some of the conference rooms there weren't enough seats set aside for all the delegates that were supposed to be in them there were some some major just kind of infrastructural planning issues that I think are in the host's control and were not especially well handled. I think from a public relations perspective, they they had a good kind of series of announcements through the COP presidency of all these side agreements you know, on methane, on coal phase outs, on fossil fuel financing. And so I think they managed that well from a PR perspective of having those kinds of side agreements. But I think in terms of the actual you know, physical details of hosting and actually making sure COP can be as productive as possible, I, I actually think it was a little bit disappointing from the UK that they weren't better hosts in that regard.
0: There were some interesting side deals at the COP26, as you have said. At one moment, there was a lot of fuss about the US-China agreement. But how significant is this? Taking also into account the larger framework of Washington slash the West relations with Beijing.
1: The relationship between the West and, the, and between the U.S. and China specifically is obviously complicated. And you know, there are some issues where there's lots of tension you know, over Taiwan, over human rights, over trade. And it, it's good if those tensions don't stop us from making progress on an issue like climate change. Insofar as their kind of joint announcement indicates that the countries are going to try and work together on climate change, even though there are these other geopolitical, geostrategic conflicts, that's positive. How positive really depends on what kinds of agreements they can make, what kinds of domestic actions they can implement. But I, I just think in general, it's a positive sign that they will at least want to send the signal that they're going to try and cooperate on this
0: issue. What to expect from the COP27?
1: So I think there are a few different things we should expect. Coming back to the point of loss and damage, I think we're definitely going to see more discussion of loss and damage. The next one, I think, you know, some of the failure to get loss and damage, financing fully up and running. I think, as you said earlier, we kind of kicked the can down the road a bit. But I think developing countries having at least gotten it on the agenda more at this COP, I think we, we should expect to see that return the next COP, we'll probably see more discussion of adaptation. I mean, both of those things uh, are probably going to be coming up more and more at each COP, both because of the hard work by delegates from vulnerable countries, especially small island states, to bring them up and to put them on the agenda, but also because you know, the damages of climate change are already here and arriving. So as that happens more in each year, um, those, those pieces uh, on the agenda are become going to become even more salient. Something we should also look out for—it's going to be hosted in Egypt, which is oppressive regime. So it's not clear how much protesting is going to be allowed. And since so protest and civil society plays a really important role in pushing COP forward, that's going to be something pretty difficult. And I think the last thing I'll say—you know, you talked earlier about, about villains. You know, I think we should definitely look out both at, the, at this COP, but, but especially you know in, in the future COPs, not just for climate denial, but for climate delay. Because I think where there are villains, you know, where we do have resistance from fossil fuel companies um, or from people trying to derail the process, often it's not coming in the form of denial of the problem anymore. It's, it's often coming in the form of arguments to delay or arguments to go slowly or to phase out really slowly. And you know, that's, I think, what we should be really watchful for. Because I think we're going to see more climate delay uh, we're going to continue to see that, and we can't afford it,
0: Alexander. And to conclude it, we had this debate during our first conversations before the conference. So the same question after COP26: Is humanity on a self-destructive path, or perhaps less now?
1: We we are on a self-destructive path. We we're still on that self-destructive path. You know, we talk a lot about like 2.4, 2.7, two, you know, all these numbers. Um, you know, can sometimes distract us from the real human impacts. and 1.5 don't sound very different, but the IPCC put out a great report a few years ago. Half a degree difference is the difference between more than twice as many people exposed to severe life threatening heat waves. It's an Arctic, the difference between an Arctic that has no sea ice whatsoever, one out of every 10 years instead of one out of every 100. It's a difference between twice the species loss, twice the loss in global fisheries double the crop yield drops, say, for, for corn. we have two degrees instead of 1.5, 99% of the coral reefs in the world are at risk of dying. 1.5 to 2, we're talking about more flooding, more risks to health, more death, weaker economic growth. And we're doing this to ourselves and we're doing it unnecessarily. And it's still within our power to stop that. But if we don't, then, then we are unnecessarily on a self-destructive path.
0: This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts and all the other platforms. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.